Preface and Historical Introduction of Theologia Germanica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. A. Carter. Theologia Germanica by an anonymous author. Translated by Susanna Winkworth. Preface and Historical Introduction. Preface To those who really hunger and thirst after righteousness, and who therefore long to know what righteousness is, that they may copy it, to those who long to be freed not merely from the punishment of sin after they die, but from sin itself while they live on earth, and who therefore wish to know what sin is, that they may avoid it, to those who wish to be really justified by faith, by being made just persons by faith, and who cannot satisfy either their consciences or reasons by fancying that God looks on them as right when they know themselves to be wrong, or that the God of truth will stoop to fictions, miscalled forensic, which would be considered false and unjust in any human court of law. To those who cannot help trusting that union with Christ must be something real and substantial, and not merely a metaphor and a flower of rhetoric. To those, lastly, who cannot help seeing that the doctrine of Christ in every man as the indwelling word of God, the light who lights every one who comes into the world, is no peculiar tenet of the Quakers, but one which runs through the whole of the Old and New Testaments, and without which they would both be unintelligible, just as the same doctrine runs through the whole history of the early church for the first two centuries, and is the only explanation of them. To all these, this noble little book will recommend itself, and may God bless the reading of it to them, and to all others no less. As for its orthodoxy, to evangelical Christians, Martin Luther's own words ought to be sufficient warrant, for he has said that he owed more to this than to any other book, saving the Bible and St. Augustine. Those, on the other hand, to whom Luther's name does not seem a sufficient guarantee, must recollect that the author of this book was a knight of the Teutonic order, one who considered himself, and was considered, as far as we know by his contemporaries, an orthodox member of the Latin Church, that his friends and disciples were principally monks, exercising a great influence in the Catholic Church of their days, that one of their leaders was appointed by Pope John the Twenty-Second, nuncio and overseer of the Dominican order in Germany, and that during the hundred and seventy years which elapsed between the writing of this book and the Reformation, it incurred no ecclesiastical censure whatsoever in generations which were but too fond of making men offenders for a word. Not that I agree with all which is to be found in this book. It is for its noble views of righteousness and of sin that I honor it, and rejoice at seeing it published in English now for the first time from an edition based on the perfect manuscript. But even in those points in which I would like to see it altered, I am well aware that there are strong authorities against me. The very expression, for instance, which most startles me, vergothet, deified or made divine, is used word for word both by St. Athanas and St. Augustine, the former of whom has said, He became man that we might be made God, and the latter, he called men gods, as being deified by his grace, not as born of his substance. There are many passages, moreover, in the epistles of the apostles, which, if we paraphrase them at all, we can hardly paraphrase in weaker words. 
it seems to me safer and wiser to cling to the letter of Scripture, but God forbid that I should wish to make such a man as the author of this Theologia Germanica an offender for a word. One point more may be worthy of remark. In many obscure passages of this book, words are used both by the author and the translator in their strict original and scientific meaning as they were used in the creeds, and not in that meaning which has of late crept into our very pulpits under the influence of Locke's philosophy. When, for instance, it is said that God is the substance of all things, this expression, in the vulgar Lockeite sense of substance, would mean that God is the matter or the stuff of which all things are made, which would be the grossest pantheism. But substance, in the true and ancient meaning of the word as it appears in the Athanasian Creed, signifies the very opposite, namely that which stands under the appearance in the matter, that by virtue of which a thing has its form, its life, its real existence, as far as it may have any. And thus, in asserting that God is the substance of all things, this book means that everything except sin, which is no thing, but the disease and the fall of a thing, is a thought of God. So again with eternity. It will be found in this book to mean not merely some future endless duration, but that ever-present moral world governed by ever-living and absolutely necessary laws in which we and all spirits are now, and in which we should be equally whether time and space, extension and duration and the whole material universe to which they belong became nothing this moment, or lasted endlessly. I think it necessary to give these cautions because, by the light of Locke's philosophy, little or nothing will be discerned in this book, and what little is discerned will probably be utterly misunderstood. If any man wishes to see clearly what is herein written, let him try to forget all popular modern dogmas and systems, all popular philosophies, falsely so-called, and be true to the letter of his Bible, and to the instincts which the indwelling word of God was wont to awaken in his heart while he was yet a little unsophisticated child. And then let him be sure that he will find in this book germs of wider and deeper wisdom than its good author ever dreamed of, and that those great spiritual laws which the author only applies, and that often inconsistently, to an ascetic and passively contemplative life, will hold just as good in the family, in the market, in the senate, in the study, aye, in the battlefield itself, and teach him the way to lead in whatsoever station of life he may be placed, a truly manlike, because a truly Christ-like and godlike life. Charles Kingsley, Torquay, Lent, 1854 Historical Introduction by the Translator The treatise before us was discovered by Luther, who first brought it into notice by an edition of it which he published in 1516. A second edition, which came out two years later, he introduced with the following preface. We read that St. Paul, though he was of a weak and contemptible presence, yet wrote weighty and powerful letters, and he boasts of himself that his speech is not with enticing words of man's device, but full of the riches of all knowledge and wisdom. And if we consider the wondrous ways of God, it is clear that he hath never chosen mighty and eloquent preachers to speak his word, but as it is written, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. Psalm 8, verse 2. And again, For wisdom opened the mouth of the dumb and made the tongues of them that cannot speak eloquent. 
Wisdom, chapter 10, verse 21. Again, he blameth such as are high-minded and are offended at these simple ones. Concilium in opus, etc. Ye have made a mock at the counsel of the poor, because he putteth his trust in the Lord. Psalm 14, verse 6. This I say because I will have every one warned who readeth this little book that he should not take offense to his own hurt at its bad German or its crabbed and uncouth words. For this noble book, though it be poor and rude in words, is so much the richer and more precious in knowledge and divine wisdom. And I will say, though it be boasting of myself and I speak as a fool, that next to the Bible and St. Augustine, no book hath ever come into my hands whence I have learnt or would wish to learn more of what God and Christ and man and all things are. And now I first find the truth of what certain of the learned have said in scorn of us theologians of Wittenberg, that we would be thought to put forward new things, as though there had never been men elsewhere and before our time. Yea, verily, there have been men, but God's wrath, provoked by our sins, hath not judged us worthy to see and hear them. For it is well known that for a long time past such things have not been treated in our universities. Nay, it has gone so far that the holy word of God is not only laid on the shelf, but is also mouldered away with dust and moths. Let as many as will read this little book, and then say whether theology is a new or an old thing among us. For this book is not new, but if they say as before that we are but German theologians, we will not deny it. I thank God that I have heard and found my God in the German tongue, as neither I nor they have yet found him in the Latin, Greek, or Hebrew tongue. God grant that this book may be spread abroad, then we shall find that the German theologians are without doubt the best theologians. Signed without date, Dr. Martin Luther, Augustinian of Wittenberg. These words of Luther will probably be considered to form a sufficient justification for an attempt to present the Theologia Germanica in an English dress. When Luther sent it forth, its effort to revive the consciousness of spiritual life was received with enthusiasm by his fellow countrymen, in whom that life was then breaking with volcanic energy through the clods of formalism and hypocrisy with which the Romish church had sought to stifle its fires. No fewer than seventeen editions of the work appeared during the lifetime of Luther. Up to the present day it has continued to be a favorite handbook of devotion in Germany, where it has passed through certainly as many as sixty editions, and it has also been widely circulated in France and the Netherlands by means of Latin, French, and Flemish translations. To the question, who was the author of a book which has exerted so great an influence, no answer can be given, all the various endeavors to discover him having proved fruitless. Till within the last few years, Luther was our sole authority for the text of the work, but about 1850, a manuscript of it was discovered at Würzburg by Professor Reus, the librarian of the university there, which has since been published verbatim by Professor Pfeiffer of Prague. This manuscript dates from 1497. Consequently, it is somewhat older than Luther's time, and it also contains some passages not found in his editions. As upon careful comparison, it seemed to the translator indisputably superior to the best modern editions based upon Luther's, 
It has been selected as the groundwork of the present translation, merely correcting from the former one or two passages which appeared to contain errors of the press, or more likely, of the transcriber's pen. The passages not found in Luther's edition are here enclosed between brackets. As has been stated, the author of the Theologia of Germanica is unknown, but it is evident from his whole cast of thought, as well as from a preface attached to the Würzburg manuscript, that he belonged to a class of men who sprang up in southern Germany at the beginning of the 14th century, and who were distinguished for their earnest piety and their practical belief in the presence of the Spirit of God with all Christians, laity as well as clergy. These men had fallen upon evil times. Their age was not indeed one of those periods in which the vigor of the nobler powers of the soul is enfeebled by the abundance of material prosperity and physical enjoyment, nor yet one of those in which they are utterly crushed out under the hoof of oppression and misery. But it was an age in which conflicting elements were wildly struggling for the mastery. The highest spiritual and temporal authorities were at deadly strife with each other and among themselves, and in their contests there were few provinces or towns that did not repeatedly suffer the horrors of war. The desolation caused by its ravages was, however, speedily repaired during the intervals of peace by the extraordinary energy which the German nation displayed in that bloom of its manhood, so that times of deep misery and great prosperity rapidly alternated with each other. But on the whole, during the first half of this century, the sense of the calamities which were constantly recurring predominated over the recollection of the calmer years, which were barely sufficient to allow breathing time between the successive waves that threatened to overwhelm social order and happiness. The unquestioning faith and honest enthusiasm which had prompted the Crusades no longer burnt with the same fierce ardor, for the unhappy issue of those sacred enterprises and the scandalous worldly ambition of the heads of the church had moderated its fervor and saddened the hearts of true believers. Yet the one Catholic Christian creed still held an undivided and very real sovereignty over men's minds, and the supremacy of the church in things spiritual was never questioned, though many were beginning to feel that it was needful for the state to have an independent authority in things temporal, and the question was warmly agitated how much of the spiritual authority resided in the Pope, and how much in the bishops and doctors of the church. But in whichever way the dispute between these rival claims might be adjusted, the reverence for the office of the clergy remained unimpaired. The case was very different with the reverence for their persons, which had fallen to a very low ebb owing to the worldliness and immorality of their lives. This again was much encouraged by the conduct of the popes, who in their zeal to establish worldly dominion made ecclesiastical appointments rather with a view to gain political adherence or to acquire wealth by the sale of benefices than with a regard to the fitness of the men selected or the welfare of the people committed to their charge. On the whole, it was an age of faith, though by no means a blind, unreasoning taking things for granted. On the contrary, the evidences of extreme activity of mind meet us on every hand, in the monuments of its literature, architecture, and invention. A few facts strikingly illustrate the divergent tendencies of thought and public opinion. Thus we may remember how it was currently reported that the profligate Pope Boniface VIII was privately an unbeliever, even deriding the idea of the immortality of the soul 
at the very time when he was maintaining against Philip the Fair the right of the Pope to sit as Christ's representative in judgment on the living and the dead, and to take the sword of temporal power out of the hands of those who misused it. Whether this accusation was true or not, it is a remarkable sign of the times that it should have been widely believed. Some years later, and when the increased corruptness of the clergy after the removal of the papal court to Avignon provoked still louder complaints, we see the religious and patriotic Emperor Louis IV accusing John XXII of heresy in a public assembly held in the square of St. Peter's at Rome and setting up another pope in order to please the Roman people. But though the new pope was every way fitted by his unblemished character and ascetic manners to gain a hold on public esteem, we see that the emperor could not maintain him against the legitimately elected pope, who from his seat at Avignon had power to harass the emperor so greatly with his interdicts that the latter, finding all efforts at conciliation fruitless, would have brought peace by unconditional submission had not the estates of the empire refused to yield to such humiliation. Yet we find this very pope obliged to yield and retract his opinions on a point of dogmatic theology. He had, in a certain treatise, propounded the opinion that the souls of the pious would not be admitted to the immediate vision of the deity until after the day of judgment. The king of France, in 1333, called an assembly of prelates and theologians at his palace at Vincennes, where he invited them to discuss before him the two questions, whether the souls of departed saints would be admitted to an immediate vision of the deity before the resurrection, and whether, if so, their vision would be of the same or of a different kind after the judgment day. The theological faculty, having come to conclusions differing in some respects from those of the Pope, the king threatened the latter with the stake as a heretic unless he retracted, and John the twenty-second issued a bull declaring that what he had said or written ought only to be received in so far as it agreed with the Catholic faith, the Church, and Holy Scripture. No circumstance, perhaps, offers a more remarkable spectacle to us in its contrast with the spirit of our own times. At the present moment, when the Pope could not sit for a day in safety of his temporal throne without the defense of French or Austrian bayonets, we can scarcely conceive an emperor of France or Austria taking upon himself to convene an assembly of Catholic theologians, and the latter pronouncing a censure on the dogmas propounded by the head of the Church. It would be hard to say whether the sovereigns of the present day would be more amused by the absurdity of devoting their time to such discussions, or the consciences of good Catholics more shocked at the presumption of such a verdict. Still, it must not be forgotten that the importance of religious affairs in that age must not be ascribed too exclusively to earnestness about religion itself, for the ecclesiastical interest predominated over the purely religious. The Pope and the Emperor represented the two great antagonistic powers, spiritual and temporal, the rivalry between which absorbed into itself all the political and social questions that could then be agitated. The question of allegiance to the Pope or the Emperor was like the contest between royalism and republicanism. The Ghibelline called himself a patriot and was called by his adversary the Gulf a worldly man or even an infidel, while he retorted by calling the Gulf a betrayer of his country and an enemy of national liberties. 
We cannot help seeing, however, that in those days, both princes and people, wicked as their lives often were, did really believe in the Christian religion, and that while much of the mythological and much of the formalistic element mingled in their zeal for outward observances, there was also much thoroughly sincere enthusiasm among them. But both the two great powers oppressed the people, which looked alternately to the one side or the other for emancipation from the particular grievances felt to be most galling at any given moment or place. In the frightful moral and physical condition of society, it was no wonder that a despair of providence should have begun to attack some minds which led to materialistic skepticism, while others sought for help on the path of wild speculation. The latter appears to have been the case with the Beghards, or brothers and sisters of the free spirit, who attempted to institute a reform by withdrawing the people altogether from the influence of the clergy, but whose followers, after a time, too often fell into the vices of the priests from whom they had separated themselves. In 1317 we find the Bishop of Achenstein complaining that Alsace was filled with these beggars, who appear to have been a kind of antinomian pantheists, teaching that the spirit is bound by no law, and annihilating the distinction between the creator and the creature. Both in their excellencies and defects, they remind us of the modern, quote, German Catholics, Unquote, and of some two of the recent Protestant schools in Germany. There seems to have been no party of professed unbelievers, but that some individuals were such in word as well as deed appears from what Roisbrock of Brussels, 1300 through 1330, says of those, quote, who live in mortal sin, not troubling themselves about God or his grace, but thinking virtue sheer nonsense, and the spiritual life hypocrisy or delusion and hearing with disgust all mention of God or virtue, for they are persuaded that there is no such thing as God or heaven or hell, for they acknowledge nothing but what is palpable to the senses." Unquote. The early part of the 14th century saw Germany divided for nine years between the rival claims of two emperors, Frederick of Austria, supported by Pope John XXII and a faction in Germany, and Louis of Bavaria, whose cause was espoused by a majority of the princes of the empire as that of the defender of the dignity and independence of the state and the champion of reform within the church. The death of Frederick in 1322 left Louis the undisputed emperor, as far as nearly all his subjects were concerned, and he would fain have purchased peace with the pope on any reasonable terms that he might apply himself to the internal improvement of his dominions. But John XXII was implacable, and continued to wage against him and his adherents a deadly warfare not closed until his successor, Charles IV, submitted to all the papal demands and to every indignity imposed upon him. One of the most fearful consequences of the enmity between John XXII and Louis of Bavaria to the unfortunate subjects of the latter was the interdict under which his dominions were laid in 1324, and from which some places, distinguished for their loyalty to the emperor, were not relieved for six and twenty years. Louis, indeed, desired his subjects to pay no regard to the bull of excommunication, and most of the laity, especially of the larger towns, would gladly have obeyed him in spite of the Pope, but the greater part of the bishops and clergy held with their spiritual head, and thus the inhabitants of Strasbourg, Nuremberg, and other cities, where the civil authorities sided with the emperor and the clergy with the Pope, were left year after year without any religious privileges. 
for public worship ceased, and all the business of life went on without the benedictions of the church, no rite being allowed but baptism and extreme unction. After this had lasted sixteen years, the emperor, wishing to relieve the anguished consciences of his people, issued, in conjunction with the princes of the empire, a great manifesto to all Christendom, refuting the pope's accusations against him, maintaining that he who had been legally chosen by the electors was, in virtue thereof, the rightful emperor, and had received his dignity from God, and proclaiming that all who denied this were guilty of high treason, that therefore none should be allowed any longer to observe the interdict, and all who should continue to do so, whether communities or individuals, should be deprived of every civil and ecclesiastical right and privilege. This courageous edict found a response in the heart of the nation, and public opinion continually declared itself more strongly on the side of the emperor. Yet on the whole it rather increased the general anarchy, for in many places the priests and monks were steadfast in their allegiance to the pope, and refusing to administer public service were altogether banished from the towns and the churches and convents closed. In Strasbourg, for instance, where the regular clergy had long since ceased to perform religious rites, the Dominicans and Franciscans had continued to preach and perform mass, but now they too, frightened by the edict which placed them in direct opposition to the Pope, dared no longer to disregard the renewed sentence of excommunication hanging over them, and refusing to read mass were expelled by the town council. Many of these banished clergy wandered about in great distress, with difficulty finding refuge among the scattered rural population, and the sufferings they endured proved the sincerity of their conscientious scruples. Some few, either from worldly motives or out of pity for the people, remained at their posts. The former indeed throve by the miseries of their fellow creatures, driving a usurious trade in the famine of spiritual consolation. For it is upon record that in time of pestilence the price of shrift has been as much as sixty florins. The spectacle of such discord between the clergy and the laity was something unspeakably shocking to the Christian world in that age, and the energetic proceedings of the magistracy must have utterly staggered the faith of many. Of all the events that were stirring up men's passions and energies, none was more calculated to move their souls to the very center than to find themselves compelled to stand up in arms against those whom they had been wont to bow down before and to reverence as the source of those spiritual blessings, for the sake of which they were now driven in desperation to take this awful step. To these political and religious dissensions were added, in process of time, other miseries. After it had been preceded by earthquakes, hurricanes, and famine, the Black Death broke out, spreading terror and desolation through southern Europe. Men saw in these frightful calamities the judgments of God, but looked in vain for any to show them a way of deliverance and escape. Some believed that the last day was approaching. Some, remembering an old prophecy, looked with hope for the return of great Emperor Frederick II to restore justice and peace in the world, to punish the wicked clergy, and help the poor and oppressed flock to their rights. Others transversed the country in processions, scourging themselves and praying with a loud voice in order to atone for their sins and appease God's anger, and inveighing against man's unbelief, which had called down God's wrath upon the earth, while some thought to do God's service by wreaking vengeance on the people which had slain the Lord, and thousands of wretched Jews perished in the flames kindled by fanatic terror. 
All things work together to deepen the sense of the corruptness of the church, to lead men's thoughts onwards from their physical to their spiritual wants, to awaken reflection on the judgments of God, and to fix their eyes on the indications of the future, so that John of Winterher was probably not alone in applying to his own times what St. Paul says of the perils of the latter days. In these chaotic times, and in the countries where the storms raged most fiercely, there were some who sought that peace which could not be found on earth in intercourse with a higher world. Destitute of help and comfort and guidance from man, they took refuge in God, and finding that to them he had proven a present help in time of trouble, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land, they tried to bring their fellow men to believe and partake in a life raised above the troubles of this world. They desired to show them that the eternal life and enduring peace which Christ had promised to his disciples was of a truth to be found by the way which he had pointed out, by a living union with him and the Father who had sent him. With this aim, like-minded men and women joined themselves together, that by communion of heart and mutual counsel they might strengthen each other in their common efforts to revive the spiritual life of those around them. The association they founded was kept secret, lest through misconception of their principles they might fall under suspicion of heresy and the Inquisition should put a stop to their labors. But they desired to keep themselves aloof from everything that savored of heresy or disorder. On the contrary, they carefully observed all the precepts of the church and carried their obedience so far that many of their number were among the priests who had been banished for obeying the Pope when the Emperor ordered them to disregard the interdict. They assumed the appellation of Friends of God, Gottesfreunde, and in the course of a few years their associations extended along the Rhine provinces from Basel to Cologne and eastwards toward Swabia, Bavaria, and Franconia. Strasbourg, Constance, Nuremberg, and Nordlingen were among their chief seats. Their distinguishing doctrines were self-renunciation, the complete giving up of self-will to the will of God, the continuous activity of the Spirit of God in all believers, and the intimate union possible between God and man. The worthlessness of all religion based upon fear or the hope of reward and the essential equality of the laity and the clergy, though for the sake of order and discipline the organization of the church was necessary. They often appealed to the declaration of Christ, John chapter 15, verse 15. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. And from this they probably derived their name of friends of God. Their mode of action was simply personal, for they made no attempt to gain political and hierarchical power, but exerted all their influence by means of preaching, writing, and social intercourse. The association counted among its members priests, monks, and laity without distinction of rank or sex. Its leaders stood likewise in close connection with several convents, especially those of Engenthal and Maria Medingen near Nuremberg presided over by the sisters Christina and Margaret Ebner, much of whose correspondence is still extant. Agnes, the widow of King Andrew of Hungary, and various knights and burghers are also named as belonging to it. Foremost among the leaders of the party should be mentioned the celebrated Tauler, 
a Dominican monk of Strasbourg who spent his life in preaching and teaching up and down the country from Strasbourg to Cologne, and whose influence is to this day active among his countrymen by means of his admirable sermons, which are still widely read. At the time of the interdict, he wrote a noble appeal to the clergy not to forsake their flocks, maintaining that if the emperor had sinned, the blame lay with him only, not with his wretched subjects, so that it was a crying shame to visit his guilt upon the innocent people, but that their unjust oppression would be recompensed to them by God hereafter. He acted up to his own principles, and when the Black Death was raging in Strasbourg, where it carried off 16,000 victims, he was unwearied in his efforts to administer aid and consolation to the sick and dying. Much of Toller's religious fervor and light he himself attributed to the instructions of a layman, his friend. It is now known from contemporary records that this was Nicholas of Basil, a citizen of that free town and a secret Waldensian. Little is known of his life beyond the fact that he was intimately connected with many of the heads of this party and was resorted to by them for guidance and help. For being under suspicion of heresy, he had to conceal his movements from the Inquisition. He succeeded, however, in carrying on his labors and eluding his enemies until he reached an advanced age. But at length, venturing alone and unprotected into France, he was taken and burnt at Vienne in 1382. Another friend of Toller's, and like him an eloquent and powerful preacher, whose sermons are still read with delight, was Henry Suso, a Dominican monk belonging to a knightly family of Swabia. One of the leaders of the Friends of God, Nicholas of Strasbourg, was in 1326 appointed by John XXII Nuncio, with the oversight of the Dominican order throughout Germany, and dedicated to that pope an essay of great learning and ability, refuting the prevalent interpretations of Scripture which referred the coming of Antichrist and the Judgment Day to the immediate future. Thus we see that the friends of God were not confined to one political party, and this likewise appears from the history of another celebrated member of this sect, Henry of Nordlingen, a priest of Constance who, like Suso, was banished for his adherence to the Pope. One of the most remarkable men of this sect was a layman and married, Ruhlman Merswin, belonging to a high family at Strasbourg. He appears to have been led to a religious life by the influence of Towler, who was his confessor. He is the author of several mystical works, which he says he wrote, quote, to do good to his fellow creatures, unquote, but he contributed perhaps still more largely to their benefit by his activity in charitable works, for he established one hospital and seems to have had the oversight of others also. He likewise gave largely to churches and convents, but is best known by having founded a house for the Knights of St. John in Strasbourg. The characteristic doctrines of the Friends of God have already been indicated that they should not have fallen into some exaggerations was scarcely possible, but where they have done so, it may generally be traced to the influence of the monastic life to which most of them were dedicated and to the perplexities of their age. The book before us was probably written somewhere about 1350, since it refers to Toller as already well known. It was the practice of the Friends of God to conceal their names as much as possible when they wrote lest a desire for fame should mingle with their endeavors to be useful. This is probably the reason why we have no indication of its authorship beyond a preface which the Würzburg manuscript possesses in common with that which was in Luther's hands, and from which it appears that the writer, quote, was of the Teutonic order, a priest and a warden of the house of the Teutonic order in Frankfurt. 
A translation of this preface is prefixed to the present volume. Till the discovery of the Würzburg manuscript, it was supposed that this preface was from Luther's hand, who merely embodied in it the tradition which he had received from some source unknown to us. And hence, some disregarding its authority have ascribed the Theologia Germanica to Tauler, whose style it resembles so much that it might be taken for his work, but for the reference to him already mentioned. Since, however, the antiquity of the preface is now proved, we must be content with the information which it affords us, unless any further discoveries among old manuscripts should throw fresh light upon the subject. Should this attempt to introduce the writings of the Friends of God in England awaken an interest in them and their works, the translator proposes to follow up the present volume with an account of Toller and selections from his writings, believing that the study of these German theologians, who were already called old in Luther's age, would furnish the best antidote to what of mischief English readers may have derived from German theology, falsely so called. Manchester, February 1854 Letter from Chevalier Bunsen to the Translator 77 Marina, St. Leonard's on Sea, 11th May, 1854 My dear friend, Your letter and the proof sheets of your translation of the Theologia Germanica with Kingsley's preface and your introduction were delivered to me yesterday as I was leaving Carlton Terrace to breathe once more for a few days the refreshing air of this quiet, lovely place. You told me at the time that you had been led to study Tauler and the Theologia Germanica by some conversations which we had on their subjects in 1851, and you now wish me to state for your readers, in a few lines, what place I conceive this school of Germanic theology to hold in the general development of Christian thought, and what appears to me to be the bearing of this work in particular upon the present dangers and prospects of Christianity as well as upon the eternal interests of religion in the heart of every man and woman. In complying willingly with your request, I may begin by saying that, with Luther, I rank this short treatise next to the Bible, but unlike him, should place it before rather than after St. Augustine. That school of pious, learned, and profound men, of which this book is, as it were, the popular catechism, was the Germanic counterpart of Romanic scholasticism, and more than the revival of that Latin theology which produced so many eminent thinkers, from Augustine its father to Thomas Aquinas its last great genius, whose death did not take place until after the birth of Dante, who again was the contemporary of the Socrates of the Rhenish school, Meister Eckert, the Dominican. The theology of this school was the first protest of the Germanic mind against the Judaism and formalism of the Byzantine and medieval churches the hollowness of science to which scholasticism had led, and the rottenness of society which a pompous hierarchy strove in vain to conceal, but had not the power nor the will to correct. Eckhart and Toller, his pupil, brought religion home from fruitless speculation and reasonings upon imaginary or impossible suppositions to man's own heart and to the understanding of the common people, as Socrates did the Greek philosophy. There is both a remarkable analogy and a striking contrast between the great Athenian and those Dominican friars. Socrates did full justice to the deep ethical ideas embodied in the established religion of his country and its venerated mysteries, which he far preferred to the shallow philosophy of the sophists. 
but he dissuaded his pupils from seeking an initiation into the mysteries, or at least from resting their convictions and hopes upon them, exhorting them to rely not upon the oracles of Delphi, but upon the oracle in their own bosom. The friends of God, on the other hand, believing, like Dante, most profoundly in the truth of the Christian religion on which the established church of their age, notwithstanding its corruptions, was essentially founded, recommended submission to the ordinances of the church as a wholesome preparatory discipline for many minds. Like the saint of Athens, however, they spoke plain truth to the people. To their disciples and those who came to them for instruction, they exhibited the whole depth of that real Christian philosophy which opens to the mind after all scholastic conventionalism has been thrown away, and the soul listens to the response which Christ's gospel and God's creation find in a sincere heart and a self-sacrificing life. A philosophy which, considered merely as a speculation, is far more profound than any scholastic system. But, in a style that was intelligible to all, they preached that no fulfillment of rites and ceremonies, nor of so-called religious duties, in fact, no outward works, however meritorious, can either give peace to man's conscience, nor yet give him strength to bear up against the temptations of prosperity and the trials of adversity. In following this course, they brought the people back from hollow profession and real despair to the blessings of gospel religion, while they opened to philosophic minds a new career of thought. By teaching that man is justified by faith and by faith alone, they prepared the popular intellectual element of the Reformation. By teaching that this faith has its philosophy as fully able to carry conviction to the understanding as faith is to give peace to the troubled conscience, they paved the way for that spiritual philosophy of the mind of which Kant laid the foundation. But they were not controversialists, as the reformers of the 16th century were driven to be by their position, and not men of science exclusively, as the masters of modern philosophy in Germany were and are. Although most of them friars or laymen connected with the religious orders of the time, they were men of the people and men of action. They preached the saving faith to the people in churches, in hospitals, in the streets, and public places. In the strength of this faith, Towler, when he had been already for years the universal object of admiration as a theologian and preacher through all the free cities on the Rhine, from Basel to Cologne, humbled himself and remained silent for the space of two years after the mysterious layman had shown him the insufficiency of his scholastic learning and preaching. In the strength of this faith, he braved the Pope's interdict and gave the consolations of religion to the people of Strasbourg during that dreadful plague which depopulated that flourishing city. For this faith, Eckhart suffered with patience, slander, and persecution, as formerly he had borne with meekness, honors, and praise. For this faith, Nicholas of Basil, who sat down as a humble stranger at Towler's feet to become the instrument of his real enlightenment, died a martyr in the flames. In this sense, the friends of God were like the apostles, men of the people and practical Christians, while as men of thought their ideas contributed powerfully to the great efforts of the European nations in the sixteenth century. Let me, therefore, my dear friend, lay aside all philosophical and theological terms and state the principle of the golden book which you are just presenting to the English public in what I consider, with Luther, the best theological exponent in plain Teutonic thus.
Sin is selfishness. Godliness is unselfishness. A godly life is the steadfast working out of inward freeness from self. To become thus godlike is the bringing back of man's first nature. On this last point, man's divine dignity and destiny, Tyler speaks as strongly as our author, and almost as strongly as the Bible. Man is indeed to him God's own image. As a sculptor, he says somewhere, with a striking range of mind for a monk of the 14th century, is said to have exclaimed indignantly on seeing a rude block of marble, What a godlike beauty thou hidest! Thus God looks upon man, in whom God's own image is hidden. We may begin, he says in a kindred passage, by loving God in hope of reward. We may express ourselves concerning him in symbols or bilder in German. But we must throw them all away, and much more we must scorn all idea of reward, that we may love God only because he is the supreme good, and contemplate his eternal nature as the real substance of our own soul. But let no one imagine that these men, though doomed to passiveness in many respects, thought a contemplative or monkish life a condition of spiritual Christianity and not rather a danger to it. If a man truly loves God, says Towler, and has no will but to do God's will, the whole force of the river Rhine may run at him and will not disturb him or break his peace. If we find outward things a danger and disturbance, it comes from our appropriating to ourselves what is God's. But Towler, as well as our author, uses the strongest language to express his horror of sin, man's own creation, and their view on this subject forms their great contrast to the philosophers of the Spinozistic school. Among the reformers, Luther stands nearest to them with respect to the great fundamental points of theological teaching, but their intense dread of sin as a rebellion against God is shared both by Luther and Calvin. Among later theologians, Julius Mueller, in his profound essay on sin, and Richard Roth, in his great work on Christian ethics, come nearest to them in depth of thought and ethical earnestness, and the first of these eminent writers carries out, as it appears to me, most consistently that fundamental truth of the Theologia Germanica, that there is no sin but selfishness, and that all selfishness is sin. Such appear to me to be the characteristics of our book and of Towler. I may be allowed to add that this small but golden treatise has been now for almost forty years an unspeakable comfort to me and to many Christian friends, most of whom have already departed in peace, to whom I had the happiness of introducing it. May it, in your admirably faithful and lucid translation, become a real book for the million in England a privilege which it already shares in Germany with Towler's matchless sermons, of which I rejoice to hear that you are making a selection for publication. May it become a blessing to many a longing Christian heart in that dear country of yours, which I am on the point of leaving after many happy years of residence, but on which I can never look as a strange land to me, any more than I shall ever consider myself as a stranger in that home of old Teutonic liberty and energy, which I have found to be also the home of practical Christianity and of warm and faithful affection. Bunsen End of Preface and Historical Introduction Recording by J. A. Carter www.afewparagraphs.com